Ooh, let's see. It is uh, Wednesday, the 18th of April, 2018, and this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat here on MMAfighting.com. Hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. On the docket today, we'll get to stories about Bellator's woes, uh, the UFC's new TV deal. We'll probably also talk about, let's see, UFC Atlantic City is coming up. Really, whatever is on your mind. Best place to get those questions in is where this window is embedded on MMAfighting.com. You can also shoot me a tweet at LThomasNews. I will get to them for the last 15 minutes of this very lovely program. Appreciate you guys joining me here on this Wednesday. Let me have a look at my Coke Zero from Chipotle Nubs. Need a little bit of caffeine, I guess. Um, yeah, no, uh, no other housekeeping notes to get to. So I appreciate you guys joining me. Should be fun. All right. Where did I put this browser? Let's put it on this side, shall we? Right there. Okay. Let's get to your questions. All right, here we go. First question is wrecked. So that's good. Uh, next round of lightweight fights. Where do, where do the UFC go with their next round of lightweight matchups? They owe the fans a title defense and also owe it to themselves to create some more contenders in this division, of which there are plenty of options. Agreed. Is Connor versus Habib the first choice? If so, does that fight get parked until McGregor is back? Maybe a year if he is banned? He ain't going to be banned. And with Tony out injured, does this mean that we would keep Habib on the sidelines until the McGregor fight materializes? If not, should Habib defend in the meantime? Let's assume the winner of Edson Barboza and Kevin Lee wins in a similar emphatic style as Tapari wins over Gaethje. Also, this person ends up saying, is this now the perfect time for Nate Diaz to return and try to make an indent in the lightweight division with McGregor potentially out further? I mean, indentation? To indent? Uh... The UFC could use his star power, and the McGregor fight will never go away for him. Well, he's been saying he won. Remember he, a few months ago, or however long ago it was at this point, maybe a couple months, something like that, he had indicated that he wanted to come back uh, around this timeline, May or June. So, sure, to answer that question, in particular, Ramadan ends, what, mid-June, I believe? When is Ramadan this year? Because that will have a bit of a big effect. Ramadan 2018. Ramadan is from... Uh, let's see, Tuesday, the 15th of May to Thursday, the 14th of June, right? So that is Ramadan this year. Um, so that means a, a buddy of mine, uh, who trains jujitsu, he is Muslim and he does Ramadan pretty strictly and still trains while that happens. Now he's not any kind of competitive athlete, but he does, he does train. And he was telling me he loses a ton of weight doing that every year. So, I don't know exactly how it affects Habib, but I think the point being is even if that fight is over or even if you start training, training during Ramadan, you're a bit of a different person coming out of it. You know, it's a month of fasting to an extent, right? Almost like time-restricted eating in a way. Um, so I just point being is I wouldn't expect a fight in July, maybe August, maybe September, something like that. I, I mean, look, here is sort of where it stands to me on this one. I just I, I feel for Dustin Poirier, and I get why he is asking for what he's asking for because apparently Eddie Alvarez doesn't want to fight him um, or at least has declined opportunities to fight him on multiple occasions. So what is he supposed to do, look backwards? No, he wants to look forward. 
But God, you know, we, we all kept saying when the UFC put a belt around somebody other than McGregor after McGregor was going to be stripped, that this would help, you know, move the division along. And the reality is it hasn't done that. Um, it has brought some clarity, I suppose, but not really because now you have to, to, to because he beat like the a guy outside the top 10 basically to get that title. So here's the point. The point is they have got to find a way, if it is at all available, to get that Tony Connor triangle or Tony Connor Habib triangle in motion. You've got to be in to get that in motion. And if that can't, that, that's your first order of priority. If that can't be done, you got to keep Habib very, very active. They need to start sorting through contenders. They need to start allowing our guys um, to start challenging for the title. They need to just keep, they need to create as many matchups as possible, as many iterations as possible to just keep things moving. I think in the end, you probably are going to see some kind of Alvarez Poirier fight. I mean, I guess it depends entirely on their participation, but I don't know how those guys don't sort themselves. But even then, even if you are Eddie or Dustin and you fight the other guy, where does that leave you? Arguably, in the exact same place you're in now, it almost doesn't do you any good to take that fight anyway. So that doesn't help. So my point being is, as soon I think the real answer here is, it, I'm not saying it doesn't matter who Habib fights. Clearly, it does. But the first order of priority is getting him as active as possible. And if he loses the title, then whoever has that title, then themselves being as active as possible. Because with Connor being uncertain, and then the injury timeline with Tony being uncertain, and now this Ramadan thing happening, which is fine, but it's because it's only a month. They got to work that out fast, fast. Get it moving. And you're going to say I'm crazy, but it wouldn't surprise me if they create some kind of interim title again there. I know that sounds insane, but all kinds of fights that they've made sound insane, and then they just go ahead and do them anyway. You've, you've got a real problem with that Tony Connor Habib triangle. And until that begins to work itself out, there is no resolution uh, to have. And again, as for Nate Diaz, yeah, sure. This is a great this is a great opportunity. If you want to come back this summer for July or August or something, of course, of course. Uh, but I, it's it's hard to know exactly what he's doing. Uh, training, yes, for sure. But in terms of what kind of opportunity he's eyeing and what he's valuing, hard to say. Kind of hard to say. Connor Habib, the first choice. Yes, of course. I'm going to make sure I answer this in full. Connor McGregor Habib is the first choice, but it's not the only choice. And so if you can't make that on a reasonable timeline, you move along if you're me. You've got, you've got, got to do something. Um, someone's, Someone's asking about MMA judging, and then someone replies saying they know what I would say. Let me very quickly get through this. Um, sorry for beating a dead horse here, but this past weekend we saw another few questionable judging decisions. Most people think Casey beat Waterson 29-28 with Casey winning the first and third rounds. This was a very close fight, so I definitely would not call it a robbery. The bigger issue definitely came in Adesanya versus Vittori fight, where Adesanya was awarded a split decision. In what universe can one of the judges score the fight for Vittori? My general question is, what needs to happen before MMA judging gets a much-needed update? Will it take something like a monumental robbery to occur in an extremely high-profile fight? Rogan suggests having a lot more than three judges watching on screens, not in the arena. I've always thought several judges, with each judge being a specialist in one area and focusing strictly on that area in each round. 
What about Pride when they score the fight as a whole? Love to know your thoughts. Cheers for all your content from Ireland. By the way, isn't today um, Irish? Today was the day, 1940. Ooh, let's see if my math is right. Is it 1949 the Republic of Ireland declared their independence? Could I be semi-right about that? In any case, someone replies saying, we all know what Luke would say, quote, I don't know why you would put a quote around it, because I didn't say this, but judging is an inexact science. It is impossible to make clear, connect, clear, correct decisions on only one viewing, and until a more technological and exact way is introduced, then we are always likely to have an inexplicable judging, or something along those lines. Right, that is partly what I would say. There's another comment down here that I think deserves the actual comment. Someone says, I was listening to Mike Swick's recap of that card. Swick and his podcast partner couldn't believe Watterson versus Casey was a split decision and guess what they thought Watterson clearly won two to one I suppose in certain types of fights it's hard to judge because different judges look at different things MMA judging is not really clear-cut and mostly down to opinion I don't know how we can fix this but there needs to be consistency um, that's the one that's interesting to me people always say oh you should get fighters you should get fighters to be on your uh, judges, or you should get fighters to be referees. And to be clear, it's not that I think that they are, would be to do a bad job. I think fighters would do a better job than just about any other group you could pull from from the population. The problem is that the idea that there would be like, oh, if you had nothing but fighters turned judges, or nothing but fighters turned referees, that you would eliminate these problems is total fantasy. Because the fighters don't all agree on what they're looking at. How many times? Yes, it's usually when they're opponents. But fighters will, after the fact, say, well, I did this and I did that, and I think that matters more. And then their opponent or somebody else might say, well, that person did this and that person did that, and I think that matters more. The idea that they, they themselves have consensus is not true. Um, as I've noted before, their act of refereeing can be enhanced by a background in fighting, but it's not required for it. And more to the point, it's not clear that all those skills transfer to what is essentially a job that has a semi-overlapping, but also a different skill set. As I mentioned also on innumerable other times, my vantage point versus your vantage point versus your vantage point will confer certain benefits or um, have potential pitfalls. My subjective criteria, even if I'm conscious of it or not, will affect it. What I saw, what I didn't, uh, what I heard, what I didn't what I believe, what I don't, my understanding of how that coheres with, like even if I'm trying to match it to what is on paper, did I do a good job of matching that, right? Because you can, we can all say, oh, what does the rule call for? Oh, well, it calls for um, damage and dominance and blah, 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 whatever it's listed, and you could be able to recite it, but does that mean you can actually, when you look at it, match up with what you're looking at and have it cohere um, to what's on paper? Some people can do that well, some people can't. Uh, there's there's just a lot of things. And when you have that many, I think I've made this point before too. Maybe I haven't. Um, uh, Tom, uh, excuse me, Tom. Mark Ripito is this famous strength guy, but he has this really one important point that I always, I always really like listening to. Um, and there are benefits and drawbacks to his system. This is not some, oh, Luke endorses everything Mark Ripito has to say. Far from it. But there was one point that he did make that I always really liked which is why is it can people bench press more than they can overhead press? And the answer is in the kinetic chain, uh, sort of along every joint, let's say it's more complicated than this, there's a leakage in the energy transfer. 
So by the time it goes from your ankles to your knees, to your hips, to your shoulders, to your elbows, to your wrists, to the end of your hands, there's a bunch of times that the kinetic energy has leaked. There's just less of that through the bench press. There's less opportunity for leakage. So you're able to, to transfer more energy. And we're assuming a strict press here, not like a, um, you know, a snatch or some kind of you know, jerk or something like that. Same thing. Every time you have an opportunity for some kind of bias or inherent limitation of the process to be involved in how that process is ultimately carried out, you're going to have a series of errors or inconsistency after the fact. Um, I don't know how you fix that, except as I, last thing on this, and I'll move on, is, you know, everyone's like, oh, Rogan's theory is that there should be more judges. I'm happy to entertain this theory. That seems like as good of a theory as any. Someone else says we should do the half points. Someone else says we should have uh, five judges there as opposed to three in person versus the Rogan theory of three not there, whatever. Until somebody experiments with this, it is a pointless matter of speculation. And until somebody can tell me how we're going to convince commission after commission after commission after commission to adopt said changes, here's what I would tell you. I would stop worrying about judging. Let's actually call this what this is. You should stop worrying about judging. Now, if you're a fighter, that is very hard for you to accept. If you're watching this because you're thinking to yourself, my God, they could affect me. They could affect my business. I spoke to Israel Adesanya on Monday. He goes, I don't even care about my records. Records are for DJs. But what he did care about was that they were going to mess with what he said, my bread, their, his money. All right. If you're a fighter, it's very, very hard to accept that. Um, but here's what I would tell you if you're a fan. Abandon all hope. I don't know what else to tell you because we have erected a system where any kind of correction is not impossible to come by, but extremely unlikely, especially any kind of helpful uniform correction. What I would tell you is get used to this. I don't know. What, I mean, I think that's the best advice I can give you is we're more or less, not entirely, but we're more or less stuck. And so I would have just abandoned hope. And I mean that. I, I'm not even joking with you. I absolutely mean that. You should abandon hope for any kind of meaningful reform in your lifetime. Okay. DC and Dom in the three-man booth. Luke, what were your thoughts on having these two in the three-man booth? While they are both capable of offering great insight... I feel like they were at odds with each other. They were stepping on each other's toes and at times disagreeing with each other and arguing. It overall came off awkward and I think the UFC could do better. All right, so then people are responding in the comments. Someone says, it's good to have debate and I think it's good for them to not always be in agreeance. I'm pretty sure agreeance is not a word. Let me verify that. Yeah, not really. Uh, it's agreement. I think it's good for them to not always be in agreement with each other, as it makes it feel less scripted. It also lets each person show their true personality. Cruz and Joe often have good debates when they commentate together and get at odds with each other over certain things. These sorts of things can make it a little bit more entertaining for the viewers to hear different sides of a situation. There have been some bad broadcast partners in the past that have come off as yes-men, or they always agree with the person and don't want to debate over something. I guess it's just a matter of opinion. 
It just depends on what you want to hear between broadcast partners. And then someone replies, it's not the debate, but how they're debating. Quote, he's got that submission locked up. Second quote, no, he doesn't. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Awkward silence. Uh, I would say that, look, um, number one, you have to give the UFC some credit for finding these guys, grooming them, and then trying different matchups and different pairings. So they've tried Rogan Cruz. They've tried Rogan DC. They've tried Rogan Smith. That combo didn't work for me that first time. Not that great. And then they tried DC Cruz, which also I think had some benefits, but has some drawbacks as well. So what you're talking about, it's not, I agree, it's not that they were arguing. I don't really mind that. I definitely feel like you get a lot of yes men who just kind of high five each other all the time. Uh, personally, I like the two-man booth better. I think the three-man booth is way too crowded, and we don't need it, and it undermines John Hannick, and I would just rather have people, like, unless there's a really compelling reason to add a third person, I don't know why we are, but either here or there. The, my major objection to it was that um, you got to put certain personalities together correctly, where how is the bubbly, effusive, but smart capable and energetic style of DC going to interact with Rogan or a Cruz or a, let's say, eventually with Jimmy Smith. How is that going to work conversely? How is the somewhat standoffish, very smart, very insightful, almost too technical for some people, somewhat curmudgeonly style of Cruz, who's my favorite, going to affect people? And you have to, it's not just who has what information role, although that's part of it, but how they will fit together. In any case, the Cruz and DC pairing felt to me like they were back in a training room and they were, at least in the case of DC in particular, were giving each other like the kind of training room insults and like, you know, playing the dozens kind of thing. Not insults, but like competitively playing the dozens a little bit. To the point where it kind of interfered with the broadcast. That, that was my major objection to it when I was thinking about it. Because DC has great info, Cruz has great info, and John Hennigan is capable of anybody. Um, and it's, I think, a great guy in that role. But they were having this, again, it's not the debate. I think that's right. It's the nature of their interaction where you would think, oh, bubbly personality, Cruz, excuse me, DC, and smart, maybe somewhat standoffish, kind of acerbic Cruz, that might be a good pairing. But it ends up being one of these training environment situations where a lot of their energy is about how they want to competitively interact uh, rather than stick to their particular broadcast role. And that's not anybody's fault other than that's just how they're going to be when they get together. You, you could probably ask them to exercise more discipline, but you're probably going to get a lot of the same things. So um, I think they just need to continue to find talent and then experiment with who knows what? I'm curious to see Tyron Woodley try that job. I don't know why they keep using him only as an analyst. Maybe they tried him and they didn't like him. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the reason is because he's great on that desk. And you have to wonder how he would be at the broadcast position. But I guess we'll have to see. Audio is a little jacked up. Let's see. What is up with the audio? Oh, I know. Here we go. Audio should be fixed now. How about that? Sorry about that. My audio got changed when I switched cameras. 
So I don't know what happened. Apologies. Let's see. About that. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Should be fixed now. Yes. All right. There we go. Better. Sorry about that. Apologies. Should be good. All right. Shocker, my settings got changed, but look how fast I fixed it, huh? Okay. Holman Anderson at UFC 225. I hope you're enjoying this week despite the DC teams once again doing what they are doing. God, both playoff teams started 0-2. They're like, oh, the Caps won last night. You think I care about the Caps winning? Can you can you please be serious and, and say I care about the Capitals winning? I don't care about the Capitals winning at all. You think that team is going to... Seriously, does anybody think, even in D.C., I'm sure there's some homers here, does anybody think that team is going to win the Stanley Cup? Ah, uh, come on. They can barely beat the Columbus Blue Jackets. Going to overtime every game, including double OT yesterday for game three, like a must win, and they barely scrape by for that. They're going to go through and just run all the way to the Stanley Cup. Meanwhile, you got the Vegas Knights, Golden Knights out there sweeping the L.A. Kings. Come on, man. That team can't win. The team can't win. Ovechkin still has no overtime goals. I just don't. And I, sorry, Otto Porter, not worth the money. Marching Gortat. What would be the difference if I played versus Marching Gortat? (laughs) Not much. Not much. And I can't play basketball even for a playground level. So, no. You don't need to. You don't need to worry about my feelings. I, I'm not getting tricked again by these donkeys. It's not going to happen. All right. Now that the Megan Anderson Holly Holm match at UFC 225 is official, there we go. There we go. Uh, I'm curious. How do you feel about this fight? Now, would you agree that both women have a lot to lose here? Also, which woman do you favor to win at this time? Someone said, "Why would they ever put Anderson in with Holm?" If she loses to home, sure, they can still do the cyborg fight, but it kills a lot of hype behind it. I just think there are much better featherweights that could have been chosen for Anderson's debut. Well, it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one, and I'll tell you why. Um, Okay. How do I feel about this fight? Number one, I mostly like it. And would you agree that both women have a lot to lose here? Sure, but that's the case with a lot of fights. That wouldn't be especially unique. Also, which woman do you favor to win at this time? I would probably favor Holly to win at this time, but she has a way of um, potentially giving some of these fights away. So, okay, let's consider this fight. Some folks wanted to have Megan Anderson fight Cyborg right away, and I understand the point that if, Megan loses this fight, then that fight gets kind of ruined, sort of. But I, I, don't, I don't agree that that would be a good idea for her development. Um, what if she goes in there and just gets absolutely smoked? How are you going to do any kind of a rematch? And what it, what would it might do to her development, right? So, like, how many people can seriously say they've raised their hand and they've watched her Invicta fights? Megan Anderson. I'm sure some of you watching could say that honestly, but probably a lot of you cannot. Um because a lot of people don't watch Invicta, right? Anytime I do a Monday morning analyst where there is any kind of Invicta content, it tanks. So it tells me that a lot of people are not watching that. 
right? Which is why I don't really cover Invicta in that anymore because I would like people to watch my podcast and they won't if I include that content. Neither here nor there. Uh, Megan Anderson is very good offensively. That is really where she shines. Great hand and feet combinations, naturally sized for the weight class, strong, um, good forward pressure, just good natural reactions when she is the one dictating the pace. What are some of the bad things? Now, these are all in development and Literally, it's been a while, what, 18 months by the time she fights since we've seen her last. So a lot of these issues may be gone, but defensively there were some issues. Head movement, um, being timed, right? Just showing enough um, defensive skills to avoid the worst of things. And she had some problems with that. That is, would be a terrible matchup for her against Cyborg. I, I, I would not like that fight for her even a little bit. This is a little bit different. Why? Because Holly Holm has some of the very things to give Megan Anderson problems. It's not as if Holly is some kind of totally great fight for Megan. There are many, many things that can challenge her. But Holly will retreat in space, which gives Megan the opportunity to do the kind of thing she's doing. Megan makes good use of her length and her reach, particularly at the end of the very end of her combinations, the last of them. Um, so she can it builds to some of her strengths. But Holly is also good at escaping the pocket, hitting and being rolling out which has been a bit of a liability for Megan. So it speaks to Megan's strengths and some of her, her historically known weaknesses. So for me, she gets to use her size. She gets to bring her A game. And it's a great test against someone who is naturally smaller, who is towards the end of their career-ish, who can still test her, but is a is a doable test if she's made requisite progress. What is the point in putting her in a cyborg fight if there's no there there? Right, so we can scam customers. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, if we, if she really is going to end up being the person that some of us think she might be, and, and that remains to be seen, passing a test like Holly Holm is particularly important, and it's a great opportunity for her. It's a big name. It would allow her to silence some of the doubts about her weaknesses, and it will allow her to let her strengths be there as well. Consider the Dustin Poirier fight against Justin Gaethje. Why is that his best win? Right. If someone asked you, why, okay, that's, let, let's assume we all agreed it was his best win. Oh, is that his best win? All right, maybe, yeah, it is. Why would it be his best win? Right. Here's my answer to that. I would argue that not merely is this one of the better op opponents he's ever defeated. I mean, yeah, he defeated Max Holloway, but that was before Max Holloway was Max Holloway. That isn't my answer. Instead, what I would say is, what was one of the big knocks on Dustin Poirier for a long time? It was that he could be baited into brawls. He could be, he could lose composure in a fight and he could be pulled out of sticking to a game plan um, and lose to maybe in fights he shouldn't or to opposition he shouldn't. And what was great about beating Justin Gaethje was Gaethje in both the Alvarez and the Poirier fight, and we went over this on my Monday Morning Analyst. Yes, you have to deal with an enormous amount of abuse, but if you stick to a game plan, uh, roughly around 15 minutes, it bears fruit. That's the big lesson. Different game plan for Eddie versus Dustin. But if you just stick to it and keep finding that and adhere to it, about 15 minutes in, it begins to bear fruit. That's the whole point for me and Dustin. He didn't get baited into super brawling. He didn't get out of his game plan. That was a mature, diligent, smart, capable, tough performance of the very kind that showed he had worked through a lot of his weaknesses. Does this mean he is the perfect fighter? Far from it. No one is. But it does show you that one of the things that had historically plagued him 
is, I don't know if it's completely behind him, but it wasn't the defining factor in this fight. He won because he was able to overcome that. That's real progress. That's exactly the kind of opportunity that Megan Anderson has here. She has had time off to work on her game. She has an opponent who will allow her strengths to breathe, who also, at the same time, will take advantage of some of her weaknesses if they're still there. She's undersized. It's a big name. You can't beat her. What's the point in having a cyborg fight? So you can scam customers? No, thank you. I almost appreciate how much the UFC is vetting their candidate here. And if she has worked on her game, then she should win. She should absolutely win. What's next for Condit? He has lost seven of his last nine. Jesus, has he really? Let me see that. Seven of his last nine? Lord. I knew it had been four in a row, but... Yeah, wow. Well, I mean, he was fighting some killers, too. Let's be real about that. But So he had a one, two, three, four, five-fight win streak from 2009 to 2012 beating jake ellenberger rory mcdonald dan hardy don kyung kim and nick diaz then he lost to saint pierre and Hendricks. all right he beat martin campman which was a in this in the rematch their first fight was incredible then he lost to tyron woodley with that injury then he beat tiago alves and then he lost to lawler maya magni and Oliveira. wow you could forgive all of that right up until the last two. Not that those guys aren't good fighters, but they're not the same caliber of title contenders that Maya Lawler, Woodley, Hendricks, and St. Pierre are, including one of them, one, two, three of them being, four of them being former champions. But then Maya, number one contender, Magni top 10, Al Oliveira outside the top 15, trending in the wrong direction, right? Wow. I didn't even think about that. Man, that's crazy. Um, he has lost both of his fights since his hiatus, but it wasn't in a you-should-hang-him-up kind of way. Where do you think he'll go from here? Will he ever be a title contender again? Gatekeeper, Bellator. He seemed to have a pretty decent self-assessment on social media. What do you think of his post-fight Instagram? I love that thing he put up, man. Did you guys not like that? I mean, I would have liked more to see him, you know, get back to the top of the division, but that wasn't in the cards. And so if it's not, what's the next best thing? It's... It's the kind of self-awareness you saw here. Um, I thought he was great. I thought he was honest with himself in a sober way. I thought he was honest with the audience in a sober way. I thought he was uh, just struck absolutely the right tone, struck totally the right note with that one because he didn't close the door on any kind of return to competition, but he pretty clearly realized that Maybe this is not a good idea right now, and we should just focus on his family, which he mentioned he would do with his sons, as well as his business. I think that's probably the right idea. And and why I liked it was because for a couple of reasons. One is that, and I made this point, I think, previously um, on Saturday, was that he didn't look, as you mentioned, like totally shop-worn, where he's just kind of sitting there and posing off and not throwing back. Right? That's not how he looked. That's not how he looked at all. Um, he was in there competing. You can say that very clearly. He was competing. And uh, as a consequence, 
you have to you have to acknowledge that that means that there's still fire in him. The question is how competitive is he ultimately? That to me was the problem. You know, you can lose to former champions, that's fine, and then the number one contenders even, and that's fine. But then you're starting to lose to guys outside the top five and outside the top ten, outside the top fifteen. That's when you're really be seeing the, the the trajectory out there. He just is not competitive with the top welterweights. And I had somebody on Reddit say, "Oh, well, we've known that for years." No, you didn't. No, you didn't. It was true that he was losing fights, but the very clear hope, whether it was misplaced or not, but the discussed hope was that could he make a return to the top? That was the whole point. The whole point was to see, hey, can he make one more run at the title, one more run at the very top of the division? Maybe he's not in that place at the moment, but there was a belief he could reclaim it, or at least, again, some kind of hope that he could reclaim it, and that was what was extinguished, at least for now. But let me say this very clearly because I've gotten this wrong before. Um, I've counted out fighters who have made resurgences, most notably Andre Orlovsky. There's been twice where he's had these like terrible losing streaks, and I thought, well, that's got to be it, right? I mean, in his 30s, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I saw the fight against Heratonov where he had this, you know, dejected look on his face uh, at the Izod Center on Strike Force. And then he built himself back up. And then he had this other losing streak. And now he's put together a few couple a couple of wins in a row. And who knows what's going to happen against Tai Tuivasa. Here's my point. Arlovsky is very much not the same as other fighters. He has shown an extraordinary degree of perseverance. But I've also been wrong enough there where would I close the door on Carlos Condit coming back? I would not. I think for now, if he's realizing that even with these intense camps he's putting himself through, he's not as competitive as he once was, I don't want to see him get beaten both on his record and then physically abused to the point where he is just standing there posing off, not throwing back in fights. Like So to get out before that happens is a great idea. But as long as he can continue to compete, it really depends on his goals. Does he only want to compete if he can be the very best, or does he want to compete as long as he can you know, put together some wins in the UFC? That depends on him. That depends on what you as the fan base wants and what the UFC expects out of him. But it sounds like he's making a choice about his health, he's making a choice about his future, and he's not closing the door to anything. I, I don't know how you can be – I can understand if you're a fan, you know, not being thrilled about everything there. But I don't see how you can be. I don't see how you can be upset about that. That's a smart fighter making a smart decision before things got bad. That's life, man. This game will swallow everybody who tries to uh, compete in it. Every everybody's going to get swallowed eventually. And knowing when that's happening is hard. It's hard to know when you're if the losing streak really is just a moment in time or something that be, can be corrected. It's hard to know how much you're willing to put yourself through to figure out that answer, right? Because that's also hard. Like, how much evidence do I need to believe that X is true or Y is true? Um, those are never easy answers. And I give him credit for trying to figure that out. I think you have to be kind of happy about it in a way. In a way, he tried. He gave it a run. He competed. That's not an obvious thing. He competed. Um, most some even some fighters who get out there and they don't really compete or they compete for a round and then they kind of just quit on themselves. He competed. He just got beat by a better guy. Okay, no shame in that, man. That guy held a UFC gold around his waist for a time, um, and and gave us some of the best fights in UFC history. Truly, he did good. I I I I, I maybe we'll see him one more time or more, but for now, I'm very satisfied with what we as fans have been able to enjoy from him. And uh, 
I hope he has happiness, whatever he does. Not not a lot of guys are going to give you what he gave you in that Instagram post. One of the best Instagram posts I've ever seen from a fighter in terms of wrestling with doubt. Uh, ESPN Fox Sports UFC TV deal. Yesterday it was reported the two rivals have put in a joint bid for UFC TV rights. What do you think of it? If it goes through, do you think the product will change for us fans or change in other ways? Boy, there was a lot I did not like about it. Let me be very clear about that. So let me read through some of these comments about it because they're trying to wrestle with this as much as I am. Someone writes, if I'm understanding this right, they would add ESPN as a channel, meaning Fox and ESPN would broadcast shows. It does seem awful at first. It can be confusing to know which event is on which channel, but it does seem to be the way of things. I guess the only way I'm strictly opposed is to is adding UFC to an ESPN streaming service the consumer must pay for. And then someone below that writes, more paywalls is bad. So you'd have, as a UFC fan, you have to pay for cable and internet, fight pass, ESPN plus, and pay-per-views. You know, I mean, that's an insane ask for fans. Uh, okay, so let's sort of go through what they were mentioning. They were saying that Fox Sports would retain the bulk of UFC content, although they didn't specify exactly what that bulk meant, but that UFC could strike a deal with ESPN to put 15 shows on their ESPN Plus system. I signed up for ESPN Plus. It's uh, it's it's uh, five bucks a month, or if you sign up now, you can pay fifty bucks a year, and uh, so they'll shave off like two months as part of the deal. I signed up for it because uh, I wanted to know, I want I wanted to monitor the progress. Have you guys signed up for ESPN Plus? Show of hands, who signed up for ESPN Plus? I did. Um, it sucks ass. It's terrible right now. Now it's not like um, the product is like bad in the sense of you sign on and you get logged out. Like there's technical issues like this live chat. No, no, no. not like that at all. It, 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 the service works as intended. But if you have a closely monitored DVR, there's nothing you can't get ahead of time for the most part. Some MLS games, but I'm sorry. I love the DC United. I have a DC United, no taxation without representation jersey. Um, I support the home team, but MLS is garbage. It's it's garbage. I'm sorry. It's bad soccer, and I don't like watching it. Um, in an age where you have B in sport, and you can watch La Liga or NBC Sports, and you can watch Premier League or even Fox Sports 1 and 2, Bundesliga, as well as Champions League, you know, MLS just doesn't do it for me. And I know that the Sounders and the Timbers pull in big crowds. That's great. Y'all like watching bad soccer? Y- you are entitled to watch it, but those guys are scrubs. And I don't like watching it. So what is the value for me in watching games that were missed? And people like, and I tried to I tried to watch the one DC United game and there was blacked out. And I mentioned that. And someone's like, well, yeah, it's blacked out because of the the way in which it airs on other uh either other other platforms or on ESPN. There's controls about that. Right. But if I'm gonna be paying for ESPN plus, I want some of those blackouts to go away so I can watch the game no matter what. Um, I get that certain networks might have priority because of local interests, but that makes the service not in any way help. Like what? I'm going to catch up on a Philadelphia Union game? I don't care about the Philadelphia Union. I want to see my home team, especially if it's a game I missed. In any case, so that's terrible. They do have some of the uh, top rank library on there if you want to sift through that. That's kind of cool. 
Um, they have some of the old 30 for 30 stuff and some other documentaries, but most of those I caught live or caught them on DVR. So that doesn't do me any good. And then if you go to the schedule now, this is literally true. You can pull up by sport like golf, um, NCAA, I don't know, basketball or whatever. And then you can pull up combat sports. If you pull up combat sports as a menu and for what's upcoming, nothing shows up. There's nothing on the schedule that's combat sports. Really, we can't even get glory reruns on there. I mean, I guess maybe some of that stuff goes on Fight Pass. Some of it doesn't. But don't they have a deal with ESPN2? We don't even get their retreads put on there. That's not part of the library, the stuff that aired on ESPN2. I mean, it's 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 terrible. Here's the other part. when With YouTube TV, for example, which I have, you can plug in anything. Oh, Jeopardy. You can watch the show Jeopardy. You can click a little button. It looks like a... Uh, a cross with a circle around it you click it and you can record not only that episode you can record every jeopardy episode and you have unlimited dvr um could be wrong about espn plus they have some stuff stored on there but in terms of customization about things you want to prioritize in terms of recording they didn't have that option at all so even if anything had showed up on the combat sports schedule i would have had no way to record it in case i missed it i mean it's garbage straight up garbage so i'm assuming that that service is going to get better. And they just launched it to get it off the ground out of its beta stage, which I understand. I'm assuming in a year or two or three, the service will be significantly better than what it is now. After all, Netflix started out as an online delivery service, which they still do, but um, you get the idea. Or, you know, it, it wasn't always the streaming company that it is now before we had to mail in the DVDs and, and whatnot. So... It will get better. But as it stands today, it's total garbage. So why would you want to have ES UFC on there? Well, as a way to really boost people's attraction to it. But, okay, here's the questions I have. What does that mean for Fight Pass? Now is Fight Pass just going to be for, like, UFC library, prelims, and then EBI and Invicta? Is that what it's going to be? Like, not even – no more, like, Fight Pass-specific stuff? They're going to take the – who knows what's going to happen with the Contender Series? Who knows what's going to happen with the Ultimate Fighter? Um, but it would certainly undermine the value of Fight Pass. By the way, remember, WME Endeavor just bought New Lion, the streaming company that does work not really for UFC but all the other major sports organizations. You're going to buy that and then just give stuff to the ESPN Plus platform. Plus, let's also talk about this. It would make sense for ESPN to want to have UFC on ESPN Plus as a real great way to recruit people to the service. I can understand that. But what is the value of being on ESPN Plus? Right? If I had to ask you, forget the term ESPN Plus. Let's call it X Plus. And forget the ter term UFC. Let's call it Y. Right? What, what is the value of Y being on X Plus in terms of visibility or prestige? Nothing. Nothing. Which leads me to the other part. They were saying they were going to give $120 million to $180 million a year for 15 shows. I call bull s on that one. Let's say it's let's call, let's put it down the middle. One hundred and fifty million. ESPN's paying for ten million a show to put on their streaming platform. I don't buy that at all. I don't buy that at all. Plus, even if it went on ESPN, what does that mean for being on Sports Center? Right. The whole point of being on ESPN is that you can get some coverage from what they're doing. What is the value of being on ESPN Plus if that's only place you live? terrible look at what fox sports does they not only air uh ufc atlantic city there'll be a pre-fight show a post-fight show for pay-per-views they have weigh-in shows 
It's they have a UFC tonight. They have this entire system to promote UFC content. You're just going to throw 15 shows on ESPN+. Plus. Now, to be clear, that article was lacking in detail, so maybe some of this stuff would be worked out. I'm just thinking out loud based on what we know. But I'm, I understand that the future is streaming, and I think I give credit. I tried to watch WrestleMania. I wanted to eat a bucket of scorpions to end my misery by the time it was over. But I give credit to them for being visionaries about how to package their product and give it to the world. And that WWE network relative to Fight Pass just seems so smart. And they're going to walk away from that because they want the prestige of being on ESPN+. Plus. I, I hate it. I hate it. So the other thing we don't know is how much is there going to be in terms of pay-per-views reduced or not reduced. Um, another issue for me would be the bulk of stuff is going to stay on TV. You mean to tell me you're going to keep going with the Ultimate Fighter? Really? Today is the beginning of the Ultimate Fighter, and on my radio show later, I'm going to talk about some of the things the Ultimate Fighter's done well because everybody wants to crap on it, which I understand. I'm not in any way trying to argue out of it. I get it, but at the same time, it's like, okay, they're crapping on it because it's done. It's done, dude. It's super done. It's super done. Even if you can still milk out a few viewers from it and some ad inventory, it's not a good show anymore, and nobody wants it. At least not many, anyway. And 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 the contender series is awesome, but as I alluded to on Twitter earlier, w- there are some challenges to taking something that's native and born on the internet and then putting it on TV. As you can see, I don't like a lot of it, um, but there are a lot of details missing. How much would Fox Sports have? How many shows would they have? How many pay-per-views would they have? What does it mean for Fight Pass? Is the ESPN Plus stuff... Maybe seven shows go on ESPN and seven go on ESPN Plus, in which case that changes it a little bit because then it, you would you, you want ESPN on Sports Center, you want it on First Take. You know, you could say you don't want it on those shows, but you do because that's where still a lot of people go, and there's a certain prestige element to it all. And in, in any case, um, what I worry about is let's say let's say it is true. I, I can't imagine that it's true, but let's say that it is true that ESPN is offering ten million a show to go on ESPN plus let's just for the moment say that's true now what are you doing you're taking a monetary deal to help pay for this debt load of you know four billion and some change um, even though it's not really what's best for the product because being on ESPN plus to me has next to no value pretty close to none in terms of visibility and what it means for showing your product to the world it's a great way to collect revenue if that's what they're offering you but it's a great way to not be seen. So I don't know. Let's wait. That That's just my impression based off of what we know from that article. And what we know from that article is very incomplete. And by the way, it could all be a bunch of nonsense. And that could be a UFC plant, by the way, that they gave that information to Variety to interest other bidders or to get Fox Sports to pay more or whatever. There's lots of different ways that that, could, that story could have been uh, manipulated. Um, or to manipulate other other people. So let's just see what they come back with. But my initial impression of the details in that story, yeah, no me gusta. All right, please rank these fighters by who really needs to get the W this weekend. Frankie Edgar, Leslie Smith, Jim Miller, David Branch, Aljamain Sterling, Corey Anderson. Well, Frankie's a big one. Let's go Frankie one. Leslie Smith, I believe, is on a win streak. Right or no? See or no? God damn it. 
let's see. Yeah, two in a row. Irene Aldana and then Amanda Lemos, Lemos, however you pronounce it. She won two of those. Damn, she only fought. Oh, she fought three times in 2016. She fought once in 2017. So Smith would be at the bottom of the list. Uh, I would put Frankie one, Sterling two, Anderson maybe three. I don't know where Jim Miller is. Let's see. Um, Jim Miller, what is he? Oof, three in a row. So we could put him maybe. We could put him maybe. See, Aljamain Sterling had that bad knockout. That's why. I, okay, you know what? I'll go Frankie one. I'll go Miller two, Sterling three, and then Anderson or Anderson three, and then Sterling four. I'll put Branch at the bottom of the list, and then Smith, you know, Smith at the very bottom of the list. That's what I would do. All right. Is Kevin Lee as good as he says he is? That's an interesting question. Luke, is Kevin Lee as good as he says he is? Is he legitimately a top five lightweight in your opinion? Yes. Yes, he is. What do you think of the attributes that make him worthy of such a place? Okay, a couple of things. He has fumbled a couple of times as a growing fighter, which is to be expected. No fighter is, well, not no, but very few fighters. You, know, you, you watch John Jones, you just get like a weird impression of fighters on the come up because they look so invulnerable but most of the time even really good championship fighters like look at demetrius johnson his rise was not like this his rise was like that you know it was not quite linear he had ups and downs the whole time now the overall path might have been this way over time but it definitely had some peaks and valleys so yes i realize there are some weight class issues involved with his early run at bantamweight but you get the idea it's just sort of emblematic and he had that bad run again or that bad fight against what leonardo santos and, of course, he stumbled against um, uh, Tony recently. But the Santos issue, I would favor him over Santos today. Right? It was Leonardo Santos. Let me just sort of verify I got that right. Um, I would favor him over this gentleman. Yes. Ally Aquinto, you know, I'd like to see that rematch. To see what would happen. That was his UFC debut. Um, but for me, when he beat Magomed Mustafaev, that really opened my eyes because Mustafaev is like this absolute you know, barn burning talent. And then when he beat Trinaldo quickly, and then when he beat Chiesa pretty quickly, I was like, that's impressive. And he was putting it on Tony Ferguson before he lost. Now, Tony, in my mind, won that rightfully, but there's also a big question about the health of Kevin Ferguson, given that staff infection and what it could have all meant. But for me, the fact that he stumbled a few times is not disqualifying. It's, it, it's you know, it's never a great thing, but it's not unusual. Uh, I think his wrestling is phenomenal. I think his athleticism is phenomenal. I think he makes better and better decision. He he gets better very quickly. His boxing has improved tremendously. His footwork has, I mean, his footwork might be the best improvement of anything, to be quite honest. Uh, and he just has a real keen knack for hard work and adaptation. And he has a few tricks where he does things a little bit differently too. So he's got a bit of a unique style in certain ways that I don't think he gets credit for. Now, ultimately, he has to go out there and prove it. I can say I think he's a top five lightweight, but that doesn't make it true, nor does it make it true if he says it. He has to go out there and do it. Beating Edson Barboza would go a long way towards proving that. Um, but my hunch is that he probably is. Now, someone says, I don't think his record stacks up as, as good as others at the top of the end of that division. I think he seems to have missed a level of opposition when he jumped from that win against Chiesa to being outclassed by Tony Ferguson. 
Okay. Barboza after Chiesa would have been a more logical step, but I can't handle him for taking this opportunity. He will now get to prove his medal this weekend. Agreed. Look, I think we can all agree Barboza is a pretty great test. You can beat that guy. You're probably a very good fighter. I think there's a lot of pressure on Lee to back it up this weekend and was curious of your thoughts. Yeah, I would I would agree with you. Like, there's a big jump. Michael Chiesa had a, has a good fight, but is a good fighter. Um, I don't think that was the best he ever performed. And I think Lee just did a really great job. Plus, there was the stoppage issue. But Barboza seems like one of those guys, again, battle-tested, not shop-worn, hard to beat. Um, you got to be really something special to put it on him. And if Kevin Lee can do that, I think he can go a long way towards not silencing critics because he has a lot of opinions about the world. <laughs> and I take it from me if you do. Um, not everyone's going to sign on to them. But... I think he can go a long way towards inspiring confidence in his upside. I think that's really kind of the issue here. You know, because when he goes up there and he says, oh, Poirier versus Gaethje was in championship level, you know, a lot it's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way because um, they're going to say, oh, he's misrepresenting what the fight was about or he's not taking the guys seriously or, you know, some other objection. And that's just him being a competitor. You got to really understand that because Kevin Lee's a smart guy, um, but he's also, you know, He's a big believer in himself. And and until you've gone out there and proven without a shadow of a doubt what your final upside is, that's going to sow doubt and things like that. So, Luke, if you could only watch one fight for the rest of the year, scheduled or not, what matchup would it be? Someone says Tony Habib. Tony Habib or Tony Connor? I got a feeling. I was talking about this on with somebody. If they did, to excuse me, what am I saying? Habib, Tony, or Habib, Connor. Uh, I would take Tony versus Habib if they could do it. Tony versus uh, Connor if they could do it. But uh, imagine if I was, I, uh, I had, uh, I spoke to um, Adam Hill of the uh, Las Vegas Review Journal. And I asked him, if they do Connor versus Habib, where do they put it? He was like, oh, that's a Vegas fight. And I would be inclined to agree, of course, right? I mean, for all the reasons you could understand why it would be a Vegas fight, it's a Vegas fight. But I thought to myself, what if they put that in November in MSG? Now, here's what I mean by that. It would work for a lot of reasons. One, you could have the Irish come over. Number two, to the extent the Russians wanted to come over, that would be, I guess, you know, as close as anything, relatively speaking. But you would also har harness the native um, Russian population and Russian diaspora, both in New York and the nearby states and, and even Canada to an extent, right? So you would have this real Russia versus Ireland vibe. Um, and given how nasty it got between them at UFC 223, would putting it in New York while being good for creating an incredible atmosphere, would it also raise too many security concerns? In other words, by putting it in Las Vegas you'd actually be weeding out the kinds of audiences that you would normally covet, but you'd be, by weeding them out, making it a more hospitable environment for security overall. Because it's not like I think they would all attract gangsters. These guys all fancy themselves gangsters. You know, it's just like, please stop with this. You're not. Um, but it would attract people who have, as fight fans, strong passions, right? Guys who, guys who 
really love Connor or really love Habib and really are Russian and really are Irish. And, and it would be this, you know, you could imagine there would be some conflict there because of the nastiness of the, of the rivalry. And so maybe the better idea is putting it in Las Vegas, not because Las Vegas is somehow a better choice than New York in November at MSG, but rather that because by shipping and making all those Irish come all the way to Ireland and many would still go as we know, excuse me, all the way to Las Vegas and many would still go as we know, but it would weed out just enough of them and weed out just enough of the Russians to not turn into some kind of melee that you might get if it was in New York City. I don't know. I could be wrong. I was just sort of pondering the implications of that. But um, if they put that in New York, I don't know how you could miss that. I mean, that would be a fight of a lifetime. Are you kidding me? Conor McGregor versus Habib Nurmagomedov in November in Madison Square Garden. Russia versus Ireland <laughs> at the world's most famous arena. Okay. Uh, doesn't come much better than that, does it? Best fighter to never win in the UFC. Boy, that is a great question. Wow. Uh, hey, Luke, maybe it's been asked before. I don't think that it has. Who do you feel is the most talented fighter to compete in the UFC yet never get their hand raised? Candidates may include Jay Huron. Jay Huron is 0-4. John Alessio, 0-5. Jason Mayhem Miller, 0-3. Gilbert Ival, 0-3. Kid Yamamoto, 0-3-1. Wow. That is wild, man. What a great question. Mm. My hunch is to say Kid Yamamoto because if you witnessed his uh, growth and and what he meant to Japanese MMA for a time and how big a star he was, and at the time when Uriah Faber was looking for fights versus him, and then to what he was when he fought in the UFC, it was... It was a sad decline, to be quite honest. Um, so I'd probably put him. Mayhem Miller's up there. Alessio's up there. Jahiron being 0-4 is shocking, man. You know, not like he fought scrubs or anything, but still, good Lord. Hmm. That's shocking. That's Because that's a list of very good fighters, you know, who did some pretty impressive things in their career. Someone says, you forgot about Phil Brooks. Yeah. Yeah, about that. Uh, Gaethje and tune-up fights. Hi, Luke. Is it time the UFC take a step back with Gaethje and give him a tune-up fight? Maybe a grappler. With him saying he only has five fights left in him, he said about five. As a promoter, how would you make the best of it? So... um, what would I do? I would do the following. I would uh, I would book him fights outside the top five for sure. Now, he kind of is outside the top five anyway at this point, but I'm talking very clearly outside of it, closer to eight, nine, or ten. So let's look at those rankings. Let's see. So who do we have in the lightweight division that would matter? So you have... Uh, Poirier at five, Gaethje at six, Lee at seven, Nate Diaz at eight, Kies at nine, Iaquinta at ten. There's no way Nate would sign on for it. I mean, not no way, but I, I suspect it would not be a big deal for him. But can you imagine a Nate Diaz-Justin Gaethje fight? Good Lord, that would be crazy. 
Um, I would put him somewhere in that Iaquinta uh, Kiesa space, to be quite honest. Or James Vick. Because all the I mean, anybody in that look at look at the top. Here's here's eleven to fifteen. Vic, Pettis, Hernandez, Paul Felder, and then Olivier Albin Morcier. You're not fighting scrubs no matter who's on that, you know, who who you pick up there. All those guys are tough. Um, but I would definitely take a step back for sure. Not because you want how would I say how do I explain this? I wouldn't book him against somebody who I thought would give him less of a beating. Exactly. I would book him against somebody who I thought he meritoriously should be matched against because he's just going to fight the way he's going to fight. And even those guys in World Series of Fighting put it on him a little bit. Uh, As I mentioned before, if you look at his stats, he's one of the very few fighters, at least at the elite level, who takes more strikes, significant strikes per minute than he dishes out, and substantially so. You look at Anthony Pettis, he's just about the same. You look at someone like Max Holloway, Max Holloway dishes out twice as many as he takes. Here is the numbers for um, Justin Gaethje. Listen to this. So strikes landed per minute, 8.67. Strikes absorbed per minute. 10.68. So let's pick another fighter, right? Let's try, uh, let's try Dustin Poirier. What about him? All right, here we go. Strikes landed per minute, 5.57. Strikes absorbed, 3.73. How about, I've already told you about Pettis. Pettis is about neck and neck. How about, let's say, Jim Miller. Now, three fight losing streak, this might be pretty bad, but let's see. Even then, it's pretty close. Strikes landed per minute, 2.75. Strikes absorbed per minute, 2.84. So very, very close. Yes, technically more absorbed than landed, but not. there's not some great disparity. Let's pick somebody else. How about Tiago Alves? Tiago Alves. Strikes landed per minute, 3.60. Strikes absorbed, 3.14. Close, but still. Carlos Condit. How about Carlos Condit? Right? Strikes landed per minute, 3.62. Strikes absorbed, 2.36. So you get the idea. You can find guys who are who might take more, but it's really close. He has actually a big gap uh, between them, which is very unusual. And so um, he's going to fight every time that way, whether they're good or they're bad fighters, uh, or not bad fighters, but like if they're not super elite, he's still going to fight them the same way. And he's still going to take a, a bunch of abuse. So it's not like I'm trying to protect against abuse per se, but you know if you've lost to Eddie and Dustin, you deserve to take a step back and fight somebody who's a little bit lower in the totem pole. Uh, you saw that tweet from James Vick. You want to run up on me? Uh, how do you put it? Run up and get done up? Something like that? So that seems to me a perfectly serviceable fight. All right, let's see. I did see people being like, he should wrestle more, right? He should wrestle more. And I'm like, why would you want him to wrestle more? That would be, he would no longer be Justin Gaethje. But so he can just hang around. I mean, maybe he could wrestle a little bit or something. I, I grant you, but people being like, oh, he, he should just, you know, take guys down from now on. Okay. Oh, here we go. 
Barcelona versus Madrid, Sunday, 6th of May. Uh, CET would be 2045 in terms of the time. May 6th, El Clasico. That should be fun. All right. Let's get back to this. Bump, bada, bump, bump. Oh, let's get to this Bellator rating. Oh, my God. Did you guys see this? Luke, did you see the super low ratings for Bellator last Friday? 242K on Paramount. Is it time to start getting concerned for Bellator? Um, yes, it is. I'm officially saying yes, it is, for whatever that is worth to you. That was a shocking number. A shocking number. Now, I did some digging, and I was looking. Um, Paramount appears to have, like... Uh, or gone from Spike to Paramount because I think they wanted to compete with the rest of cable in terms of getting more general audiences to watch higher level content. Like, I guess they did a Waco miniseries that was really good, critically acclaimed. I don't know what kind of numbers it did, but I know that they've had a major influx of women relative to who was watching Spike, watching Paramount. So the, all, partly the audience has shifted. As a consequence, when you look at what's on Paramount, you could say, well, a lot of it is the holdovers from Spike, but which is true, but the holdovers were the ones that were still like general audience level interest. So let's say Bar Rescue or Ink Master or Lip Sync Battle. And the rest of it is them trying to get into like well-crafted content that my point being is it makes Bellator a bad fit for Paramount. Like when it was when it, when it was Spike and they were doing that stuff, but they were still kind of geared towards men, it made a lot more sense. You know, when it was Cops and Gangland and A Thousand Ways to Die, and then UFC was like, oh, that's a great fit. I don't think, I'll just state it plainly, I don't think Bellator's a very good fit for Paramount Network. And with the fact that they have, a, I think, a slightly different audience now, um, the rebranding is, it wasn't just a different name, but a different kind of channel. Uh, it's not a good fit for them anymore. Now, where would they go and do better? I don't know. Um, but here is what my concern is. Clearly, MMA has contracted from its 2016 high. And clearly, um, in you've seen it in all forms of the industry. Um, people who were employed before and other pillars of the MMA experience have, uh, to some degree, gone away. I think the UFC will ultimately be just fine. And I think ultimately, um, what I would say is that, as I mentioned before, combat sports is very much boom and bust. You know, look at the two big stars in WWE. They were the guys, well, Brock came from there first, but nevertheless, certainly Ronda Rousey came from us and then went over there. And it's been great for them, and, and that's great. I'm not hating on them. Like, they should enjoy it. But my, my point being is, um, it's not like there's a Ronda Rousey you can count on all the time, but there are these cyclical periods uh, where there's going to be contraction and growth. And I think also the thing about that UFC TV deal is, whatever the deal ultimately is, I want it to correct for some of the clear problems the current TV deal exacerbates having too much content, shows on too long, not promotable enough. Like, this needs to be fixed. You need to start really investing in these shows and make them count. And so whatever the next TV deal is, I want to see that matter, and I want to see other players get involved. That's why, to me, it's like, what could possibly be the value of being on ESPN Plus if it won't translate into additional ESPN coverage? There is no value, really, or very little anyway. But to answer the question about Bellator, here is my major concern. Should we be alarmed? Yes. 100% we should be alarmed. I am not... I don't know if Bellator is going to make it. 
Maybe that's uh, alarmist. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe everyone at Bellator might hear this and say, oh, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. Fine, say it. It's okay. But I'm just telling you my honest opinion. I don't know if they're going to make it, at least not in the current iteration as we understand them. They might become something else. But here is my hunch. My hunch is that as MMA has contracted, uh, it has reduced the ability for a robust number two organization to exist. In other words, yes, some of the ratings have declined for UFC on Fox Sports 1, but they've leveled out to it for the most part. Um, on Fox, not great either, but they've also kind of leveled out a little bit too. Um, pay-per-view, we've seen if you put a big enough star on there, people will buy it. There's still a lot of interest in Conor McGregor, obviously. John Jones comes back. I think he would do gangbuster numbers, right? People will always want to see people fist fight, but you know the, the the they had this huge appetite before. Now everyone's a little bit full. They don't have the same kind of appetite. And as that contraction happens, uh, it reduces the ability for a robust number two to exist insofar as you even want to call Bellator robust number two. In other words, when there was this massive appetite for MMA, you could be a secondary organization like Strike Force, and you could be on CBS and do millions and millions of viewers just because there was way more keen interest. But that honeymoon phase, or however you want to describe it, uh, is now over. It is now over. If you want to get people to watch, you got to make sure they care about that fighter and that fighter and that matchup. And the UFC is going to be able to do that. And the UFC is big enough where they're going to be able to do that, I think, for many, many years to come. However, I don't think at least for a while, we're going to be in a space where you can just have a number two who can be on national television and do shows from Thackerville and then occasionally from Hoffman Estates and that there will be an appetite for it anymore. I know some people have floated the theory that what we need to do is go back to the tournament model in Bellator, which I I need to be clear. I cannot believe people think that's a good idea as if to suggest if what they, if we did that, that all of a sudden it would rectify all these problems. No, no, it wouldn't fix the problem at all. It wouldn't stop what's happening at all. It might even exacerbate it. Yeah, I can't wait to see who the quarterfinals matchup in the bantamweight Grand Prix is. Like, nope, nobody cares. Uh, it, it wouldn't work at all. The issue is that the appetite for MMA generally is going like this. And that's going to kill off everyone in this outside space or at least severely impact them. And so you want to be on the inside, that core space. And I think the UFC certainly occupies the overwhelming majority of it. Uh, we have always lived in a world in MMA where since the UFC became dominant, there was always kind of this secondary major player. For a while, it was Japan and various Japanese organizations. And then for a while, it was Strike Force. And Bellator was never any of those things, but it certainly was the next best thing to that. But now we're at a point where I don't even know if that secondary role can survive. It, there can be other uh, ancillary players in the space, the LFAs, the um, PFLs, if we'll see what happens with that, the KSWs, the ones, there'll be plenty of other organizations, um, but they won't occupy that clear number two space anymore. I think that we need to prepare ourselves at least for the idea that the number two organization, as we think of it, is going away. Yeah. All right, let's go to the Twitter machine at L Thomas News, and I will take your questions. P 
PSA, nine days until Infinity War. So better block Colby Covington before he spoils it and everyone call it calls everyone nerds and virgins. Yeah, it might not be a bad idea. Uh, if you were the UFC, how long would you suspend Connor? How about Bellator to Viceland? I mean, if you want no one to watch Bellator, for sure put them on Viceland. Um, and you can't suspend Connor because you need him. Carlos Condit is my second favorite fighter of all time behind BJ. Like you, I thought his Instagram post was beyond admirable. Do you have any stories you've either heard or experienced of him outside the cage? Yeah, here's a funny one. So this was, uh, I was there for UFC 129. This was GSP versus Shields. And I was with Jordan Breen in a, in a hotel. It was the host hotel. And we had gone to the bar to drink, he and I. And I had gotten up for something. I can't remember. Maybe I went to the bathroom or something. And I came back, and there was a dude right in front of me, not sitting in my seat, but occupying my space where I couldn't even get to my seat. And you know me. I don't have any patience for that. So I was like, yo, man. I didn't quite say it this way, but I was like, uh, my man, you got you to gotta move it along. <laughs> you know, this, I, I was here, you know, immediately and unnecessarily confrontational, which is my style. And lo and behold, the dude turns around and it's Carlos Condit. I was like, you know what? Never mind. If you need this space, it's all good, player. And I'd actually, I think I'd met him previously. So he recognized me and we had a good laugh over it and it was fine. But it was, you know, I was like, hey, partner, those are my seats. And then it's Carlos Condit. I'm like, no, no, those are your seats. Those are your seats, Carlos. Uh, enjoy. Someone says, worth noting on Kid Yamamoto, he's the only person to ever stop Genki Sudo in MMA who was underrated as an MMA talent in his own right and is an accomplishment I don't think should be taken lightly. Well said. I have nothing to add to that. Um, someone's asking for a shout-out. I don't do them, but happy birthday anyway. How many fights does Dylan Dennis have on his contract? I don't know. Do you think he'll, be, do you think he'll win his debut fight at Bellator 198? He should. He absolutely should. Luke, what do you think about the Perry versus Yancey fight for 226? Should be a great fight. Uh, I just worry about Perry getting the time and space he needs to get better. So I'm a little bit iffy on that. But all of the things notwithstanding, should be a great fight. Um, some people complimenting some other things. How bad did you want to tell Drake to sit his ass down last night? God, please kill me about him. I, but the thing is, the Wizards, the Wizards deserve to be heckled uh, because of how bad they are. They deserve it. Marching Gortat especially deserves it. Let's see. At the rate MMA evolves, is there any possibility that McGregor may have to take too long away from the cage and it might affect his skill set? Yes. It's already a relevant question. Now, no one knows the answer to that, so I can't tell you yes it has or no it hasn't, but it, at least as he contemplates a return and they set one up, that should be at the top of your mind. How much did the time away impact his skill development? Maybe none at all, maybe a lot. But it's it's a very very worthwhile question. Someone asks, would it make sense f eventually for the UFC to buy and absorb Bellator 
and turn it into WWE Next model, proving ground, up-and-coming fighters. They've already got their own apparatus. The UFC, they're not going to buy Bellator. I would be highly surprised by that. Um, what I would say is they'll probably, if they do with it, they'll, they'll treat it probably like the IFL. Well, they let it go into bankruptcy and then they buy it for like fire sale prices um, or whatever Viacom wants to do with it. You know, I don't know. But no, they don't, they don't need Bellator. They have everything built in house. Um, and to be clear, if Bellator did go away, it would be bad for MMA. That would not be good. What would it say that you couldn't sustain a clear number two anymore? Mm, that's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. Uh, but it may be the one that we are uh, inexorably hurtling towards. With pay-per-view start times of 10 p.m., do you think a change to 8 or 9 would benefit hardcore or casual buy rates? We've been over this before. They've done it. They did it briefly. I forget what year it was when they moved everything back to 9 and they didn't like it, and so they moved it back to 10. Um, I don't mind pay-per-views being at 10 and then ending around 12.30 or so. I think that's fine. It's just uh, it's the it's the Fox Sports ones that end around 1 or 1.30. Those are the ones that make me want to lose my life. Lose my life uh, brutally. Uh, groundskeeper Willie versus Randy Marsh. Who wins? Groundskeeper Willie puts the beat down on that fool. Uh, let's see. And then there's some sound issues alerts, which have all been rectified. Um, people are asking like about studio upgrades and like what I put together, some kind of information about it. Yes, in time, but I'm not done yet. So we've got some work to do. Luke, why do you have so many technical problems? Can you take a few hours and fix the problems like I haven't been working on that for years? Uh, all right. Well, this person clearly is just a loser. Let's do that. <laughs> Wondering your thoughts on Michael Chandler's contract coming to an end soon. Does he sign with the UFC or re-sign with Bellator? That is going to be a very good it's a very good question and it's going to be a very interesting issue to follow because he has to be a smart guy and realize there. I mean, we'll see what happens with this Bellator 198 and what the ratings look like. Maybe we find out that, you know, the smaller shows don't do well, but they have life with the bigger and then European ones, in which case Bellator sort of reforms itself. So that would be kind of interesting. But if I'm him, I'm certainly looking at the long-term sustainability. And if you're like somebody like Rory McDonald too, you got to be wondering, Oof, um, how long am I going to be able to do this? Right. Let's see oh, what happened with Glow. Oh, Glow returns June 29th. Very good. Good show on Netflix. Um, with Woodley seemingly feeling slighted by most everything, how do you think he feels about Ben Askren being so outspoken in regards to fights with GSP and Habib? As welterweight champ, those are Woodley's two potential super fights. I don't think he feels in any way threatened by them, so it didn't, wouldn't really matter. Uh, having seen recent footage of DC, do you have any concerns about him making the 265-pound limit? None. He'll be just fine. I asked him about that yesterday. I think he'll make it. The question is not whether he'll make the limit. The question is whether, even while being inside the limit, will he be too heavy for his own good? Not... Like, can he objectively make the weight? I think he can objectively make the weight. It's just, could he make the weight in some kind of way that's beneficial to him?
Let's see. As the UK TV deal is ending this year, thoughts on the UFC going to potential pay-per-view in the UK as the current TV provider of BT Sport has sent out surveys asking how customers would feel about paying for events considering we are not used to paying for an all-in sub, not pay-per-view. I don't know. That's a great question, which would be better positioned for somebody not in that market. But it sounds to me like if they're trying to nickel and dime you for something you're not used to being nickel and dimed for, it does not bode well. Please articulate the pros and cons of the UFC changing their fight card lineups to consist of a specific weight class only. I think it would keep many cards from falling apart, especially ones with title fights. I can think of several pros myself. Well, I mean, there's a lot of good reasons to do it, right? So if you have fallouts, you can mix and match. And you can move the division forward in a dramatic way overnight. Um, so it provides insurance. It provides intrigue. Uh, it creates a storyline because you're talking about a division. So those are some of the things that would be great. On the bad side, you might be stalling other divisions to do that. Um, you might be having people who are available not getting an opportunity to compete. Um, some people like the diversity. They want to see big fighters. They want to see little fighters. So you'd be excluding. You'd be speaking to certain preferences, but excluding others. Um, so it just creates some. It could create some hassles in terms of calendar and other things like that. But I think once in a while, it's probably a good idea. Or if not, an entire card. You know, one of the reasons why the UFC was able to carry forward with UFC 223 was not because they had a all lightweight main card, but they had a sufficient number of lightweights such that they had insurance with what happened and they had to spend that insurance to be quite clear. Uh, who does Gustafson fight in an eventual interim light heavyweight title fight? Uzdemir. I mean, I don't even know who's going to be at the top of that division anymore. Is there anything more cringeworthy in MMA than someone being caught in a tight guillotine? Where their hands and body position is hard for them to tap or tell if they're unconscious. I don't know what you mean by cringeworthy. Like you feel bad for them or like you get douche chills. I don't get douche chills watching that. I might feel bad for them. You mean cringe like, oh, that's hard to watch? Or cringe like, that dude's a dork. Because they're not dorks. So it can't be that one. Can you explain why some guys aren't even attempting to check leg kicks at the highest level of the UFC? Because it is hard and extremely painful to do. Um, okay. Let's see. Anything on this side that I missed? Because I get two feeds coming through. Nick, someone put Nike Diaz. They literally wrote Nike Diaz. Versus Conor McGregor is the best non-title fight to make right now. Change my mind. Well, I don't know who Nike Diaz is, so I don't know that I can persuade you young person um question here from last week i was watching last week's live chat and i started thinking about something you said about zabit it was the same point you made in your post fight show talking about your concerns about his finishing ability i was hoping to get a little more insight as to what you are referring to he came into that fight with kyle bachniak having finished his previous eight opponents including a tko by retirement oddly enough it's not what retirement means um and having a total of 12 finishes in his 15 wins an 80 percent finishing rate can you please explain on what you are concerned about? I understand the perspective that his finishes are against non-UFC caliber competition, but isn't it also possible that Bokniak is just super tough and hard to finish? Can you please provide a deeper explanation to your concern? Yes. Um, it was also, did you watch the Shaman Marais fight? 
right? So go back and watch those two fights, and what do you notice? He never really ever got close to a finish on either guy. And you could say, well, aren't they just tough? Sure, but this is an organization full of tough people. So the 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 insight there to me was that the finishes came maybe not so much against you can be a good fighter and more easily finished um, than someone who's a worse fighter but harder to finish. The finishing is not always directly correlated with fighter ability overall. Some people are a little bit harder to put away, but worse fighters. Some people can be better fighters, but a little bit easier to put away in certain circumstances. And that can be a hard thing to square. But it seems to me he probably fought good opposition to prepare him for the UFC level. Look at him. Uh, but at the same time, once he got to a UFC level opponent, he's had he's not even come close in either of his two UFC fights. So does he have deep total evidence that he can't finish fights? No, not at all. He might get a great finish in his next one. Let's let's be let's be fair about it. However, um, he was never fighting in a way that was pushing towards a finish. He was fighting in a way that was dominant, but without direction. And so, if you're fighting lesser opposition. Sometimes you don't need to make a hardcore effort about direction. You just need to um, you need to do just enough to put pressure on them, and then they kind of fold. At this level, you have to you have to fight with a direction. You have to fight with intentionality. You have to fight with viciousness at all times. And you can see in the way in which he wastes energy sometimes. He does like those handstand kicks. I mean, they're brilliant to watch, and he's clearly an incredible athlete. Like we got nothing but nice things to say about Zabit, but getting rid of some of that stuff that taxes him and doesn't really push him much closer to a finish. And then really sort of thinking about how to put some of these guys away um, is a little bit better. To me, it was not merely that he's fighting a better caliber of opposition, but that he's fighting them in a way that doesn't think about the directionality of the, of the cause. All right. We have to get out of here. I appreciate you guys watching. Um, yes, there's an MMA beat tomorrow. I will make my triumphant return. What do you have to say about that? So that will be tomorrow. Enjoy that. And then, uh, yeah, enjoy UFC Atlantic City and everything else. I'll put this up on iTunes tonight, itunes.com slash promotional malpractice. And until next time, stay frosty.